This is getting better and better. And welcome to the Evolve Podcast, a podcast that disrupts to spark your personal evolution and growth. Sipping tea with menthol hulls in it from Oberlin, Ohio. Oberlin, Ohio. I don't know why I'm getting your state wrong, Miles, but uh, anyway, welcome, my co-host W. Miles Riley. Why are you getting my state wrong? We used to live here. Know. I'm here. I didn't like it. <laughs> Maybe it's because I didn't like it, and and I don't like you being there. I need you back in Utah. Uh, that part I agree with. I, I miss yeah. Utah like so much. Like I love it. Was every a great eight, every it was day. A great eight years. Well, and speaking of which, it is a beautiful day, and uh, in the mountains of Utah, I am Steve Cutler. And guys, today we have a guest. Uh, this woman is going to inspire you to disrupt and really evolve your mind, and probably evolve your soul as well. Uh, we're gonna do the bio just a little bit different today because uh, Emily, I, I really, I earlier today I tried to count how many years we've known each other and I stopped counting because it I made don't me depressed. Know. That <laughs> not because we know each other for so long, but how old I am uh -huh. as I started to count through that. Well, uh, if you're not old, then I'm not old too. So no, no, you never age. That's uh, what's <laughs> great about it. But it's great to have you join us, and I think there's really a lot of amazing things about your bio that I want to get into and talk about your story. Uh, but I want oh, to yeah. couple, touch on something to get us uh, kicked off here. Um, you're a mom who spent several years as really the primary caretaker, uh, but you also worked as a, a freelance writer and editor. Is that right? Yeah. And then First of all, she didn't, she didn't take care. She gave care. She didn't take care. She gave it. All right. There's a difference <laughs> there between a caretaker and a caregiver. Right? She was giving care. She wasn't taking care. She's not like you. She takes everything. She gives. I think you've had a few too many hauls <laughs> right. today, buddy. <laughs> well, 40 years old, you woke up and just decided, hey, I'm going to go to law school and become a lawyer. Does that about sum it up? Well, I don't know if I would say I just woke up, but I mean, it was a long struggle. But yeah, I, I think um, some people kind of want to relax through life. That's never really been my approach. I always wanted to kind of put as many lifetimes in as I could mm -hmm. to one lifetime. So it was it was actually, gosh, I guess it's been five years now. Yeah, 2016, it was two days after my 40th birthday that I started law school. Wow. That's amazing. Well, before we amazing. dive into that, because I do want to jump right into uh, you going to law school and what led to that. But I've got to ask, how are you doing? I mean, I understand you had a fight with a horse recently. I'm not sure who won. I did. I, I think I lost. I mean, this is my biggest horse, a big mare. She bucked me off. It was June 28th. So today's actually my, yesterday was my eight week anniversary. And I broke four transverse process bones on the right side of my back. And oh. I feel so incredibly lucky not to be paralyzed, not to be dead. I mean, it was, it was quite a story, but I mean, speaking of, you know, I think you guys kind of talked about it to intuition in some of your episodes that I've listened to um, oh. the night before, when I was walking through this same pasture, I had a thought about becoming paralyzed. And I said to my husband, if, if I ever become paralyzed, I want you to still do really active things with the kids and not slow down our life. And he was like, what are you talking about? Where's this coming from? And then the next evening about the same time 
I was riding, I had this very distinct thought, put more weight in your stirrups. I did it. And within three seconds, she was backing out of control. And wow. I was able to stay on for about three bucks. And then, so at least I didn't pop straight up and instead was able to kind of guide my fall off to the side into a muddy ditch where it looked like there'd be a little more cushion. And Mm. um, I really didn't know, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be able to move. I couldn't move my legs at first or anything. So I think it's just been a good reminder for me that um, you can't take anything for granted. Yeah, that's for sure. And that you've got to listen to that intuition when that uh, comes up because you really never know what's going to happen in life. And I think that uh, many of us have had those instances where we listen to intuition and fortunately things turned out better than what they could have. But wow, what a scary experience. Absolutely. So eight weeks now and uh, how, how's the healing process coming along? It's good. You'd be proud of me, Steve. As soon as I hit six weeks, I was back in the gym. So hey, I've good been for you. four to five times a week and just pushing, following the pain, you know, letting it be my guide. And, and I just, mm-hmm. I feel weak. Um, like that's frustrating to me, but I don't have a lot of pain anymore. So it's nice to go to the hospital when you're, you know, in your mid forties, cause everyone's like, Oh, you're so young. You'll heal so well. Like nowhere else in my <laughs> life. Do feel I feel great. so young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, you are the perfect example of the joke I used to make when I lived in Utah, when I would compare Utah women with New York women. New York women get hurt by breaking their nail or they sprain their ankle. Utah women, you go, how'd you get hurt? <laughs> I fell out of a helicopter. I, yeah, I right. Walked off of a horse. Like I used to love to hear the stories of what happened to Utah women because they were just so oh, I mean, outdoors and nature and all of that stuff. And it was just so different from what I used to hear in New York City. Funny. Yeah. I got what about Ohio? How do people get uh, how do people get hurt in Ohio? In Ohio. Oh, I don't know. I haven't been around enough to find out how to get hurt. <laughs> the only thing I saw people getting hurt in Ohio with is when they would get way too drunk and they would pass out. Man, that that was, I don't know what it was about where we lived in the Cincinnati area, but uh, okay. people would drink early and they would drink long. And uh, lots of people yeah, passing out out there. I, I don't see that a lot. I, do People do drink a lot, but I don't see the town that I'm in. You don't see that a lot. But I, again, I don't know how people are getting hurt out here, but I just know the difference between the New York woman and the Salt Lake City woman. That's right. Yeah. Which I appreciated the Salt Lake woman so much more. <laughs> well, Emily, we're glad that you are uh, on the mend, and it's great to hear. I like how you said that you, you feel weak, but you're le- letting your body guide you. I think that's one of the most important things that even though, you know, when we get, uh, back into something you let the body guide let yourself go through that point of weakness and then just slowly slowly build it up i was talking to somebody how was it yesterday that was talking about that he had injured his back and then as soon as his back was doing better he said then i just threw all the weight on and i was going heavy and then i heard Mm. it again i'm like no don't do that just be kind to yourself yeah it doesn't matter what you're lifting this is not about ego it's about being able to sustain this for life. So good for you. Glad that uh, you're you're on the mend and that you're moving in the right direction. So I want to jump um, I want to jump back and just start uh, and hearing about this amazing story of you at 40 years old jumping into this. But before we do that, I want to 
tell where this inspiration for me came from to have you on this. Um, one night, Danielle and I were at the symphony and in line, I look over and I see this beautiful girl that looks like Emily, maybe that I used to know when we were in school and come to find out that's your daughter who is like this perfect doppelganger of you. <laughs> and then standing right next to here, her is her beautiful mother. And so we start talking and I, I had seen on social media that you had, uh, were going through law school and that you graduated. And I thought, man, that's super cool. And then when we talked that night in the concession stand, I thought, we got to hear more about this. Now, many people, when they hit 40, they are thinking about Botox, buying a Corvette, or just <laughs> they're completely lost in life. And you went to law school. Totally opposite of what a lot of people will do. So, Taka, tell us about that. What What was the spark to get you to reinvent yourself at this stage of life? Well, that's a, I'm glad you remember that. That's a great. I remember seeing you there. That was great. Um, yeah. Do you mind if I back up a little? Please. Okay. So I had um, had been working, sorry, as a freelance writer and editor from home. I had a previously a master's in writing and publishing. And I thought, oh, this is a good career when you're the primary caregiver and you're home. And, but it was a pretty isolating career I found. And I had a lot of, we had a lot of struggles with our kids for a few years. Um, and I think I just, found, I mean, I think I was a pretty naturally confident person growing up, you know, but I think I found that I had, the more I lost touch with people outside my own little world, the, the more I was losing confidence and gaining insecurities. And I think that's a little bit disturbing of a realization to have that you're actually picking up insecurities as you get older. Who wants to do that? You know, I thought this is, this is the wrong direction. And I think, um, parenting, I don't know if you're a parent, Miles, see you are, it can, mm -hmm. man, yeah, it can make are. you feel worse about yourself than anything on earth, I think. Sometimes. Yeah, definitely. When it's not going the way you thought. And um, I had invested really hard, really a lot of myself into um, some daughters that we had adopted from Ethiopia. And, and I speak about this just because it's kind of a stigmatized topic and I'm trying to help remove the stigma. And it just some adoptions, they just don't work out. This had been seven or eight years and it wasn't working. I mean, they, they did not want to live in our family and they'd made that very clear. And we ended up allowing one of them to go to, through a second chance adoption and to another family that she felt was a better fit for her. And it was gut wrenching. I mean, it was the worst mm -hmm. I've had a baby die. I've been through a lot and it was the worst thing I've ever been through. And it really just had me on the ground kind of I mean, I felt like such a failure. It's really, there's not a lot of support out there when it's a unique situation to go through, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. But I felt very strongly that I had had, I'm a spiritual person that I'd had my inspiration that it was the right thing to do. So I think I started to kind of, I mean, I knew I was coming up on 40 and not that it mattered, really age doesn't matter. It's just a number, right? But I, I felt like restless and I felt kind of unfulfilled in my life. And then I also felt, um, really beat down by this experience. And I felt like I needed to get out of my own head and out of my own family, if that makes sense. And I think my family felt yeah, like I needed sure. to get out of <laughs> get, get a little <laughs> like, bit mom, out of focus. <laughs> yeah. Like mom, spread your wings no. a little bit, mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go so, do the thing um, by the Corvette, do whatever you want. Right. And Hey, that's all great too. You know, there's, I, I, I tried a little of that. It just wasn't enough. So I, 
had really resisted. I'd thought about going to law school before and I had resisted because I think, and I think this is a common problem that people have when they're considering a change is I thought I knew what it would mean for me. And I thought it didn't feel exactly what I fulfill exactly what I thought I was looking for. Mm, and um, I read somewhere, or maybe I was listening to a podcast. I just remember hearing that people, the number one thing that research shows that people do fail to do when planning for their futures is they always think they can foresee what the new opportunity will bring. And they usually only foresee a very small percentage of that opportunity. They don't mm, even that's really contemplate. Like, for example, you think if I go to law school, that means I'll practice law and I'll do this and this. And you don't foresee things like I will make these friendships and my way of thinking will change in this way. And, and so I thought, you know, I'm, I just, I just don't know what this might bring for me. And so it all happened kind of really fast. I took the LSAT. Um, I like set aside one month. I studied for the LSAT. I took it. I didn't get as high of a score, even close as I'd gotten when I was younger. So I was really disappointing. And I applied, um, way after the deadline, like as a trial, I was like, well, I'll just apply to the U and I'll just do it as a trial run to see if I really want to do this. And I applied and um, like five days later, I got a phone call from the Dean of Admissions offering me a spot. And I was, I remember I was driving on my way to soccer. I was on my way to a soccer game and I had a kid car full of noisy kids and it was on speakerphone. <laughs> And I answered and he was like, hello, this is Dean, you know, Reyes. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, yes, I would love to. And I kind of accepted before. And then I was like, oh crap, am I doing that? Am I going to do that? You know? So it's probably great that he did call at that point because then you were socially committed. Exactly. I already said yes. (laughs) Love that. So, but I did, I, I did falter. I don't want to give the impression that I wasn't really. I think sometimes we see people with a good point and we don't, you know, and we assume they always felt that way. I mean, I was a time that was filled with a lot of doubt for me and I was really unsure. And I have to credit my daughter who was going into eighth grade at the time who I would, I knew there was a ton of responsibility would fall to her. I knew it would fall a lot to my husband, but a lot to her because she was one of my older two kids and she's just a doer. And and I said something like, oh, I don't know if I should do this. You know, it'll be so inconvenient for the family. And she said, mom, I will be so disappointed in you if you don't do this. And wow. that was really big for me. And then my parents actually, too, they come over one day and they came over one day and were like, why not go to law school? You should do it. You know, so I just felt like I had a lot. <laughs> I can of- hear your mom saying that. Yeah. That was like almost a perfect, uh, yeah. a perfect impression of your mom. That's great. Like it's like going to a movie, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sure, you That's can do great. that. You can do it. So, yeah. So you had the family support. You had already committed. Talk a little bit about the fears, because whenever we make a big decision in life and we jump in headfirst into something that just literally scares the pants off of us. There's always going to be some fears and some doubt that creep in over time. So talk about uh, some of the things that you had to overcome after those initial conversations. You know, I was, I was terrified for one thing, not doing as well on the LSAT as I had wanted to. That was hard. I felt like my brain was not engaged. I felt, I felt like I've been watching too many years of Netflix and I, I don't know how to focus anymore and I don't know how to give my mm. attention to something. And um, I felt um, self-conscious about my age. I didn't know what it would be like to be a female non-traditional student. I had gone to school. I graduated from 
um, BYU in 1998 and with my master's in Boston in 2000. And frankly, there was a lot more sexism in my education still back then. And I didn't know. So I was really worried about facing sexism and ageism, honestly. And um, just, and also the toll it would take on everyone. I think it's hard sometimes for some of us to say, I'm going to do this for me and I'm going to acknowledge that it's for me. And I'm going to acknowledge that it's going to take a toll on everyone else. I think sometimes, especially women have a tendency to be like, oh, well, this is how this will benefit you. And it won't take a toll on you. And I will still do it all. Don't worry. I'll still take care of everything. And it's Mm -hmm. not healthy. And it was hard for me to be able to say, look, I understand this is going to be hard on all the rest of you, but I'm doing this for me. And I hope you will learn something from that lesson about doing things for yourself in the future, like just to own it was a little bit scary. Um, and then when I started, um, I just, I felt a couple of things. For one thing, I have to say in the positive, one of my first weeks of school, I was sitting in class and I mean, I kind of told you the story of the decision quickly, but it was a lot of angst. It was a lot of really worry about what should I do before I decided on law school? What should I do with my future? How can I feel this like wound in me and how can I fill this hole in me and what is my future going to look like? Because I just felt so like an untapped resource. I don't know if that yeah, makes sense. Great description. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. I have a lot to offer the world and I haven't found a way to offer it. And I also felt like I want to see it at the table. Like I want people to listen to my voice about things. And so I looked into Getting Wait, so before before you go on, Emily, I just want to ask, because I, I love how you talked about that. You feel like an untapped resource. And I think that it can sometimes feel even more difficult if you're feeling lost, but you also feel like an untapped resource because it's that yearning. It's that desire yes. to give, to contribute. You yes. know, I, we've all been lost before. We've all yeah. said to ourselves, God, what do I want to go in life? But it's almost that in that moment where you're like, where do I want to go? I have so much to give. Yes. That to me seems like the hardest moment. I mean, am I crazy in that thought? No, I think you're absolutely right because I think it feels like the depth of both. I feel lost. I don't know what I even have to offer. And I don't know if anyone wants what I have to offer. And yet yeah, I feel like a good point. I, I, I won't, I can't pull myself out of this hole unless I find a way to offer more. To contribute. Mm. Yeah. And oftentimes we don't find it out. I love how you said it uh, earlier that we tend to have a fairly fixed perspective or mindset on what that's going to look like. And we don't even know what it's going to look like until we start down that path. We don't really find out how we can contribute until we start jumping in and sharing and contributing. So I I can totally relate. That really resonates with me. I think that's so true. And you have to take a step forward. And in fact, I remember saying to my husband, you have to promise me that you'll let me quit. Not that he had to let me anything. He was, you know, not that I needed his permission, but I just felt like, I don't know if this will be the right thing for me. There's so many things. I'm the daughter of an attorney and he's a very different kind of attorney than I am. He's a business and I'm criminal all the way, you know? Mm -hmm. And I felt like, um, if I go down this path just to figure out my path and it turns out to be wrong, please let me change gears without feeling humiliated. I think that's so important to let people have the space to make a change, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And 
So I started. I like how you that. say that, though. It's not about asking permission as much as it is that as a partner, you just say, yeah. I need this emotional space. Yes. I'm not sure where I'm going to go, but I need yeah. some emotional space to make a pivot. Exactly. And that might be a big U turn. Right. And exactly. I love how you set that up because we do need that. Whether, yeah. whether you want to call it permission from a partner or just <clears throat> setting some expectations ahead of time, it does make a big difference because in that space, we now know that we can be comfortable with failure because like anybody else, you want to, you want to, um, you want to feel good with your partner. You want to feel like they've got your yeah. back, but at the same time, you want to feel like that you can fail and it's going to be okay. Yes. This, this actually sounds like, interestingly enough, this sounds like something that you should lay out the first time you meet somebody, your first date. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You're like, because I'm going to be on this path and I don't know if I'm going to stay on this path and I might deviate. These things are going to happen because they, they inevitably always do. Yeah. <laughs> That's so I think true. you should create a dating app about that, Miles. Yeah, because say, what's the biggest thing that affects people in relationships is when one person changes. Yeah. 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 That's so true. Most people get they get stuck in what somebody else is doing, and then somebody has to do a, they want to do a 180, and they feel like, what? You're, you're violating the relationship. Those we should be talking about in the early part of the relationship. This is what we're going to do. I need to, yeah. I'm going to change. I'm telling you now, yeah. change is coming. I'm just telling you right now, change is coming. <laughs> right. Well, you and know, I need Emily, support. we joke, we joke on the, uh, the podcast from time to time that somebody will say something that sparks an idea for a t-shirt. Miles, there's no t-shirt in this. You now have to create, what did you write down? Untapped resource. Oh. Okay. So we got a t-shirt there. I love that. <laughs> I like but that. I, I've got, I, I'm giving you the idea for a dating app based Seriously, on what Emily's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's the wow. idea for your business, for a new dating app, Miles dating app, where we're oh, going to make some actually, changes here. I like that. It's ironic that we ever think that people <laughs> aren't going to change in a relationship because that's all they do, right? I mean, yeah, we, all we all do right? constantly. There's a, there's a famous, well, it's not actually famous. It's, it's this guy, his name is Robert Kraft. He had a jazz song almost 30 years ago, and one of the lyrics that always resonated with me was, he said, about Robert Kraft, the uh, football owner. <laughs> no, no, song. no. This is another guy. And the lyric he was, he's, the lyric was, you should never wed to your lover said, I won't grow. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I like that. I like that. And, it, <laughs> and it, really, it really resonated with me, like, because it sounded like, okay, you only get with somebody when you're not going to grow anymore so that you can create this illusion of stability. And so, so it always resonated with me that. Yeah, it always resonated with me. So anyway. It would be well, it's great. It's great to have yeah. a partner that you can, um, you know, that you can go on that journey with that it will be there. So I'm mm -hmm. curious. I, I love your husband's name, obviously. <laughs> um, such a great name. It, how, what was Steve's response when you said, hey, I need the space to be able to fail, to quit, to make a U-turn, whatever I need to do? He just was sort of like, you know, he kind of, found, kind of found it funny. Like, have I ever stopped you from doing anything ever that you ever <laughs> wanted? my response. To <laughs> yeah, but I, but I mean, like you said, I, I felt like no, but I need to feel like if I call, partly because it's expensive. Law school is expensive, you know. Yeah. I don't, yeah. and I had some friends who were going to school whose partners were saying things like, "Oh, you're not worth this." And in fact, I had a neighbor say to me, 
say to Steve in front of me, why on earth would you throw away that kind of money on your wife? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I was like, and of course, you know, that he's stupid for saying that, but it still gets to you. And I just felt like I need to know that you'll never feel that way. Like that, even if I don't end up practicing law, that you'll, you'll value this as part of my evolution to finding out whatever, wherever it is I'm going to be. And then for the first year, I said, I don't think I want to practice law after that, just after this, just so you know. And then I ended up saying, I'm going into public service, which is what I did which does not make a lot of money. But um, what ha- what was interesting actually is right when I started law school, Steve's job started really going downhill and he was really unhappy at work. And he kept saying to me, I'm so glad you're in law school. I feel like it's the bright spot in our life. I feel like it's something for me to be excited about and talk to people about. And he would bring me a Coke up at the law school and just, you know, he said, I, I just, it never, it hadn't really occurred to him because he had been the primary breadwinner, how invested he could feel in, in a partner's career. And he just found that it brought him a lot of joy and confidence when he was going through a really hard time. And that was totally, since I was saying miles about things that you don't expect that you're going to gain from experience because you could never anticipate them. That's something I could never have anticipated, like was how much it did for my husband actually. So Mm. you never know. That's a great point. And, uh, you know, I, I saw that with uh, my wife when, because she was the, she primarily took care of the kids, worked a little bit part-time here and there. And then when she got into her career, there were so many different aspects of it that just these beautiful things that came out of it. You know, the kids start to pick up more responsibilities around the house. They start to do things at a different level. We have to now teach them at a higher level of this is why we do what we do. Yeah, But then just sitting back, I remember the first time that Danielle came home late, later than, you know, her normal time. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I got stuck on the phone and and she's telling me about all this. I looked at her, I'm like, why would you care when, like, why would you think I care when you come home? (laughs) You're, you're, you're later by 15, 20, 30 minutes. I get it. Like, I understand how that is. Oh Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, what's for dinner? I think you're so used to your time not feeling like your own ever. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really rewarding. And I have to say, I definitely had partner or I had friends um, with partners of both genders who were not as supportive, you know, who were threatened. Um, Mm. And so, it just, which really you both grow so much from the experience. And in fact, one of the most rewarding things for me, since you mentioned kids is because I, one of the struggles I had was guilt. I definitely had guilt about just on the one hand, I was really happy to see how much my kids picked up. But at the, on the other hand, I felt you just, you're, when you've been a primary caregiver there full time, and then you're not, like I said, you, you have to acknowledge there are things I'm just not there for. This is not the same. And last, um, year when I was helping my daughter apply to college and write her college essays, one of the things she wrote about was being inspired by me going to law school and how that made her feel like she Mm. could do anything and that she could go to school anywhere in the country. And she is going out of state to a good school. And that was a really important moment for me to feel like, okay, the kids got something good out of this because they didn't always get good. And I also feel like we need to allow that. Like you said, we need to allow emotional space for failure. You need to allow emotional space for the people around you 
to have some hard things come out of your decisions too. Like, I feel like sometimes we're such black and white thinkers and it, I had to be like, sometimes like, look, I'm sorry. I didn't make it to that. That stinks. I know it would have been better if I had been there or if I could have, and it's okay to acknowledge that like we're human and our kids are human. And if our kids can see us have weak times, I also think one thing that was really important speaking of fears is it's hard. Law school is really hard and it's really competitive and very grades oriented. And I went into it thinking I'm a lot older than most of these students. I have way more life perspective. I know that everyone's life is really, you know, um, a mixture. No one has, you, you get to success different ways. And I tried to keep that perspective, but as it was really hard and I wasn't able to do as well as I wanted to at first, um, I had to really get my, like put my mind back in perspective as far as grades and value and stuff. And I had a son who started college um, my last year of law school. And I felt like it was really important for me to practice what I preached. Cause I kept saying to him, just do your best. Don't worry about grades. Mm. And I couldn't be, you know, trying to like to compare myself to all the other students and worry about my ranking and everything when I was telling him not to do that. And that was really challenging, but I was glad I'd had yeah. some really bad, hard experiences where I had you know, not done as well as I wanted to on things. So I could say like, I know how you feel and, and it'll get better. And I mean, it was just hard. It's hard. Isn't it funny though? At some point where, you know, the struggles and difficulties, was there, was there any point in your tenure practicing law that you almost relaxed totally into it? All of a sudden the work just got into a flow state. Got into a flow state. When did that happen? That's such a good question. So um, the first, the second semester of my first year, I think was my lowest point. I remember after Christmas, not wanting to go back, like for the first time in years, probably like a decade and a half of my life, I didn't want to get out of bed and I didn't want to go back. I was just so overwhelmed by the whole thing. And so that was my lowest point. And then um, shortly after that, isn't it always like your lowest point comes right before you finally get in the flow, whether it's a workout or whatever, but yeah, I would say it was um, my, it was probably my second year that I started to feel like I just, I figured the end of my first year, I figured out a new way to prioritize things and I figured out how to be me and to do it my own way. And I think that's sometimes how you get into the flow of something is you realize, you know what, those people, they study that much and they study this way. I can't do that. That's just not who I am. And that's not the life I'm living I can't do law school like a 25 year old single guy is doing law school. And once I quit trying to be anybody else and I just trusted myself to learn the way I, way I could learn and the best I could. And to know that like, I'm there for a reason. I'm not going to law school for no reason. I'm going to get out. I'm going to get a degree and I'm going to practice law. That's what matters. I feel like I really did kind of sit back and, fall into the flow at that point. And then I, I just grew to love it. I mean, just, I remember my first semester, someone saying to me, Oh, don't you love it? And I just thought, who are you? Like, this is torture. (laughs) No one loves this, you know? (laughs) And then my second year, I heard myself say to someone, Oh, don't you just love it? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I've become Uh, that person. (laughs) You're that girl. (laughs) Well, I like what you were talking about earlier too, Emily, where, um, you know, as parents, we, we try and teach certain things by example, and yet we teach a lot that is just verbal. Mm-hmm. 
we're telling our kids, we're reassuring those, them at different times. I think it's it's fascinating to me to then watch a two or three or four or five years down the road where then we have to live those principles yes. that we've been teaching the kids. Because like you're talking about, oh, just do your best. Don't yeah. worry about the grades. Then you're in that spot and you've got to yeah. you got to show that example. But that example really, I think, solidifies in the kid's mind. Both both things are important, right? We got to teach the kids verbally, but we've got to show them by example. Yeah. Uh, because I think both are super important, but isn't that crazy that we, uh, we get tested at we a certain so, point so, with so all do. of the stuff that came out yes, uh, of our mouths, our mouth. then we have to show that we yeah. can do the same thing. And I think, I think another, one thing it really helped me realize is we hesitate more than we admit as parents to show our weaknesses. Like we'll tell kids our little stories of sort of our little foibles, but we don't, we save the big stuff. Like most parents don't tell them their worst moments, you know? And I felt like I really realized my kids are going to benefit more from my weaknesses than I've given them credit for, you know? Yeah. They, yeah. I'm not saying you have to share every deepest, darkest secret, but I feel like for them to see me struggle and have a hard time, it really, it really changed their view of themselves, you know, and of, and that it's okay to struggle. It's one thing to say it and it's another to do it. Like you said. Yeah. I think it's really tough to do. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. No, go for it. I was just going to ask, it, it would see also appear that uh, um, uh, I'm sure at one point you were aware of this, but it just seemed like your writing career with all the writing and editing would all of a sudden accelerate you while you were going to school. You know, it's, that's a good, you know, I think that was one of my, the hardest things for me. Well, two, two aspects of that miles. One, I, um, I felt like I had been in a creative space and I was a creative person and I had not yet written the great American novel, which is what every, what every writer thinks they're going to do. Right. So it, part of the reason it took me so long to decide to go to law school was because I had to say to myself, am I, does this mean I've failed as a writer because I didn't do that yet. And now I'm going to shift gears. Like a lot of people in a creative space see it as a failure. I think to turn to more of a law school is considered vocational writing, and um, yeah. so I had to really just like examine what do I really want? What do I care about? Do I really want to do that? Or do I just feel like my field expects me to do that? And then once I was there, so my first in your first year of law school, you have to take legal writing and it was one of my lowest grades. And that was really hard for me. I was like, wait, I'm supposed to be <laughs> I'm good. a writer. I, this should be easy. <laughs> and, and they warn you, they say people who have the more writing training you had, the worse you'll be at legal writing because it's so different. But it was so demoralizing to me. I remember calling my dad on the phone and just being like, I mean, it's so ridiculous. I was like 40, right? But I'm like, I'm a failure. I can't do this. You know, and I remember he kind of like smacked me <laughs> on the put face. Put the phone. Yeah, he was like, Emily, like, wake up, buck up. Like, it's one class. You know, you know how to write, you know. But then it was more like as I evolved through by my third year, I felt like I was a strong writer. And in fact, I feel like the jobs that I have now, I've gotten based on my writing skill. And I think that's such a good point that you make, Miles, because we don't know what about ourselves is going to lend to a change. I think for me, what's been surprising is my life experience has uh -huh. lent a lot to my career. And that's something I didn't experience. I didn't expect to happen. My experience with 
adoption and with kids and with um, friends that I have helped with their criminal backgrounds or with their addiction issues. It's all, we all bring whoever we are to whatever we do. Right. And, and right, it just yeah. matters so much more than you think. And I, and I feel now like all of it makes me better and all of it contributed. And I don't feel like I lost anything. I don't, I, first of all, it's okay. If you do lose something, it's okay. If you close a chapter and say, I'm setting part of that aside, but I also, I don't find myself going, Oh, but I, I'm losing, I'm not indulging that creative side of me. Cause I actually feel like it's very creative. There's a lot of very creative work that I'm doing. And, and I also feel that I'm fulfilled in ways I didn't know I needed to be fulfilled. Like one example is just my friends and who I, who I talk to on a daily basis in this career, you know, it feels, I feel, a str- I feel a stroke of genius coming on. It's, it's okay. coming, the stroke of genius. Mm. So what if, if you look at your life as a puzzle and the great American novel that you thought you were going to write was missing a part of the puzzle and the part of the puzzle is your law experience and the experience you have with all these people now. And now that's the final part. Now you can go on and write the great American novel. I the love The great that. American legal novel. I love no, it. It doesn't have to be legal. Just it was the pieces of puzzle that was missing. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And now you fit the puzzle in and now the great American novel can be written. You know, I think that's, that's actually really is genius, Miles, because I remember part of the reason I didn't write it for hey, years. You can't say genius like... to Miles. It's just going to blow his head way too okay, high. I, sorry. That was genius. pretty good, Miles. Too, too late. She, she filled the space. Average, too late. Slightly better than average. Okay, slightly better than average comment. But true, because I did feel for a long time like I'm not ready to write this yet. I don't have enough. I don't have the experience that I want to put into it yet. I just felt like I I wasn't finished. I was untapped, like I said. I like that. Yeah. 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 Oh, there's the The other T-shirt right here. I'm not finished. Um, I was untapped. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Yeah, I like that one. Untapped resource and I'm not finished. There, there is a, somewhat of a pattern to life there where we we develop these skills and these skill sets over time that tend to be fairly siloed in certain areas. And then at a point, all of those things start to mesh together. And we start to see this beautiful tapestry of all of the things that we're passionate about, all of the skills that we've developed, all of the experiences that we've had. And that's when I believe the true voice starts to come out. And it sounds like you're at a point now, Emily, based on your life and your training, where those things are kind of coalescing and they're coming together to just create this uh, beautiful life that you have. I I think that's a really good way to put it. I do feel like when you're young, everything feels like a silo. Oh, I did this and then that didn't work. So I did this and then I did this and that didn't work. And meanwhile, there's my family over here that has nothing to do with what I'm doing over here. And, Mm. and I think you're exactly right. Really what you're doing is you're building this whole person with, and all of this experience to bring to the table. And I feel like at least in my perspective, so I talked about like going to school 20 years ago and, and working then one of the things that has really surprised me now is I just feel like in the workforce, there's way more room for that. Like I know I've had, I kind of grew up in a time of like, don't talk about your family at work. Don't bring anything from the outside in. And I've had bosses on the floor playing with babies, 
you know, mm. in the middle of while they're discussing a legal issue. And I just feel, I mean, I feel like there's such a more open world now. Every single person I talk to at work talks about their life experience and their family experience and their previous career if they had one. And I feel like it's all welcome and it's all much more valued than it used to be. And that's another one of the things I didn't anticipate. I just, I think part of the reason I resisted because I resisted for a long time, took me about five years to decide to really do it was I felt like I was closing a door on myself on part of who I was. And that's just not what happened. And I actually feel like everything I have gone through emotionally with my kids law school helped me heal from that because it helped me think about it in so many new ways. So mm. what a beautiful perspective. Yeah. So I've got a, I've got a question, Emily, and, and I'd like you to maybe not a question. Maybe it's more so just a request. I would love for you to speak to the woman out there that is doubting or questioning themselves as to whether they should follow their heart, follow their passion towards that career or maybe a service uh, position, whatever it is that they want to, to do. And part of the reason why I want to have you talk to them is I read something recently looking back on history. And you think of all of the great accomplishments that we've had in America um, and throughout the world over the past, let's say, 100 to 150 years. And the technological revolution has just skyrocketed. We have, you know, the economy that we've created is phenomenal. But by and large, we've had 50% of the population and possibly the, the, the smartest part of the population, the female population, sitting on the sidelines. And the workspace has not always been conducive to smart driven women being in the workspace. And I, and, and there was a quote that I read recently that said, imagine what we will do when we're going to the fight with both arms and not one arm tied behind our back. And I think that we are at a point where this, it, we, we, we can change that, but I want to change that. I want more intelligent women saying, I'm going to be courageous and I'm going to go do that. So I'd love for you to speak to that woman that I'm might so be listening to the podcast. That. I'm so glad because I feel more strongly about this than anything in my life. And no, Steve and I did not talk about this in advance. But <laughs> we did. I, I just think we're thinking the same though. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, I just feel like there are so many women out there that feel like untapped resources. And, and I feel like I hear it in my community a lot in my religious community and um, just in you know, when you, I'm surrounded by a lot of women who are, are full-time parents, although many fewer, I have to be honest, than there used to be, but I, um, I think that part of it is, so I, some of the things that are most important are what I've mentioned. One is being able to own something for yourself. Like you deserve that as a person and it doesn't, it's not a zero sum game. It's not, if I make a choice that is for me, it will automatically adversely affect my family. It's like you said about Danielle going to work. Your kids learn independence. They learn more responsibility. Will there be some things you miss out on too? Yes, but you're assuming that the most valuable thing you have to offer to this world is maximum quantity of time at mm -hmm. home interfacing with your children. Yeah. And I think even just in the childcare and the people that have helped pick up the pieces for me while I was in school, my kids had so many diverse experiences with them. They learned so much from them and they, I, I feel like how 
arrogant was it of me to think that I could give them everything. Whereas when I stepped back and pulled away, I was able to give them more in a way. Um, I mentioned my daughter. Say, say that again, though. Like, how did you say that? That that the only thing you but have I to give is the maximum quantity think, of time. Yes. I think the mo- a lot yeah, of women feel a, that their wow. most value they can give the people they love is maximum quantity of FaceTime with yeah. them at home. What and, a great and, perspective. And that's not the case at all. And it's not true. And often if you... Yeah. Just to illustrate, to, to tell you one experience. So my daughters from Ethiopia that were, we were in years of years and years of counseling and um, it was a really hard thing. And I was praying and struggling, trying to figure out how to help them for years. And one day I was watching one of my son's football games. And I remember where I was standing and the thought occurred to me, what would be possible for them if you got out of the way? Mm. And I thought to myself, I don't want to get out of the way. I want them to need me. Like I want to be the answer. I adopted them because I wanted to be their mother and I want to be the answer to what makes them happy in life. And I, and I just kept having this think thought, but like, what if you aren't, what if you let go of me, your need to be the answer, what would be possible for them? And that's when I started, I said to one of my daughters, like, do you really want another family? Do you really want me to look into a second chance adoption? And that's what people don't understand about it is what a grueling and thoughtful and kind of selfless, frankly, act it is. It, it was oh, the hardest thing I ever did. But I feel like it's the same in choosing to explore your potential as a, <clears throat> as a woman in the workforce. It's um, this ability to say, what would be possible for my kids if I got out of their way a little bit? And what would be possible for me if I embrace that I'm worth it, that I have a lot to that I'm an untapped resource, that I have a lot to offer and that I deserve to explore that. And I feel like a lot of it has to do with partners. A lot of it has to do with your partners and your children being supportive. Or if you have children, partners of both genders, like I said, I had straight friends and gay friends and relationships, not always feeling supported, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to say, like, I think sometimes women have a tendency to feel patted on the head, like, oh, she wants to go to school. Isn't that cute? You know? And it's like, no, you're, you want to, I want to see what, like, I remember my husband saying to me, Hey, if you want to be in the governor's mansion someday, go for it. Like I am all yeah. for it. I'll stay home with the kids. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be a more full bodied support. Were you going to say something, Miles? He was no, gonna say, I, I, just, Emily. I was, I was going to ask uh, both of you is, does this, kind of sort of looking through the lens of Utah, because when I was there in Utah, um, I had many relationships, friendly relationships with women who I really thought, you really are an untapped resource, you know, just mm-hmm. not recognizing their power and full <clears throat> potential. Um, you would see it a lot in the gym, how people, um, a lot of women didn't know how to transpose the energy and power they put into building these phenomenal bodies. And, and transposing them to some other um, field of endeavor for this whole idea of the quantity of experience of with kids. And, and my experience in New York City was very different because women in New York City, they were like bulldozers. They would just like knock you out of the way to get to where they want to go. And if you supported them, you were fine. If you didn't, you got knocked out of, out of the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, my, my really real fast, my, my ex-wife, 
um, woke up one day and said, I need to get a master's. I mean, the master's, she looked around the country and found the program in Utah. She said, um, would you be willing to move to Utah with me? And I was agreeable. Yeah, I want to go to Utah. But even if I said, I'm not going to Utah, she would have gone to Utah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wonder I think, if it's you guys are looking out of that lens of. Yeah, I think there is. I think there is a lens there for that. And I know I remember my first week of law school saying to a young man that was in line next to me for lunch, he was in his mid twenties and saying, Oh, tell me about yourself. And he said, well, I, you know, I'm just starting law school. And he said, my wife is starting med school this today too. And I, Mm. I just, that's when it hit me. Like times are really starting to change. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And he didn't say it. Like, it's hard to explain, but when you've experienced it your whole life, you're kind of used to hearing that, that way it's sort of condescending he didn't yeah, he know condescending to her at all. He was like, yeah, yeah, she's going to med school and I'm going to law school. And then when she gets her residency after med school, I will go practice wherever she gets a residency. You know, I mean, it was very much like, this is matter of fact. And I do, and I did feel like, wow, just like we're 15 years apart in age and something has changed between my time in college and, and your time in college. And, but I do think it is a lens that you see more in, um, Utah and also more just in communities outside, you know, big cities and more suburban areas where you have more oh, yeah. okay. time. Yeah, and I do yeah, think, yeah. Um, but one thing that's really been inspiring to me is the women I've worked for. I have a female boss right now and I am moving to one. And <clears throat> I think one thing that women have, women used to feel, and they've expressed this, they used to feel like they had to act like men to be at work and tone down their femininity. Right. Right. And I have a boss right now that is like full of pink and flowers and laughing. And like, I mean, she's just, she's what you might think of as, as that kind of quintessential feminine, you know, in her heels and her pink pants. And, you know, she, she just exudes <laughs> that. And she's one of the smartest women in this state. I mean, she's at the top of her field. And I think one thing that women have had to do is own their own their womanhood and say it's okay mm-hmm. I don't need to change what I am going to become and I think that's one thing that stops some women is there's not feeling partner support there's not feeling like they deserve it and there's not and feeling like they'll have to hide some of what they are and I just don't find that to be true I feel like what women think of what women in the workforce are like is actually not true women have the wrong impression and um <clears throat> but I think a lot of it goes back to this Am I worth it or do I deserve it for some reason? And you don't have to deserve it. Like we're all on this earth to full, to evolve, right? Yeah. 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 It's a continuing process. And I, I agree with you, Emily. I think that, I think there is something culturally in a, in a yeah. suburban society. And I think in religious societies, multiple yes. religious societies, you see that yeah. where it is yeah. more dominant uh, for the male to go to work yeah. and a female to stay home. Um, not that that's good or bad. I mean, I'm extremely grateful right. that my wife stayed with the kids and raised them the way that she did until yeah. a certain point and then said, okay, I've got to, I got to uh, work outside the house and do something different. I, it, we, that was a ch- conscious choice we made. Right. And we did that together as a, as a conscious choice. And I don't think it was a bad thing. I mean, it, I think it turned well, out the great. The point is us. just to have a choice, right? I mean, right. I feel like the saddest thing to me is to see women who work attacking women who don't and women who don't attacking women yeah. who do. Right. And, and yeah, there's a lot of it. Happen. Like I just said just recently to some women on PTA at my local school, I said, you know, by having all the PTA meetings during the day, 
you're cutting out all women who work. And that's not just me. That's also a lot of like lower income women in really low income jobs who can't ever yep. leave work. They have no flexibility. And they felt kind of attacked. And I was like, I'm not attacking you. I'm just saying, let's support each other. Like, let's appreciate that we need both. There are so many room mothers now at my kid's school that are doing things I couldn't do because now I'm choosing to work. So I can't be in the classroom every single day. And I'm so grateful that there are some women that are home full time that make that possible. A good friend of mine who was home tended my son while I studied for the LSAT. You know, we just need to support each other in whatever our choices are. Yeah. Well, I think you're getting rid of the stigmas. And I think you, you mentioned a couple of things there, are, you know, women being true to who they yeah. are. I think that's extremely important. I mean, I, it used to drive me crazy if I would have um, female managers that were very strong personalities and they were bulldozers and they would just, you know, accomplish whatever it took. And then someone would say that they were, they would use different verbs to describe yeah. them than they would yeah. a male that would do the same thing. And I would call them out on it and say, no, they, yeah. there's no difference between this yeah. manager and that manager other than their gender. And you just yeah. don't like the fact that she's doing it, but that he is doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And so right. you've got to open up to that bias. The other yeah. thing too, is I would have, um, you know, some of my female managers, they would, they, they were very good at, the collaborative piece. They were very sensitive to the needs of the group, their emotional intelligence when it came to the, the group setting and understanding the emotions and feelings of everybody around was off the charts relative to the dumb guys that were there, which at times made, meant that they were a little bit more sensitive to certain nuances of the business. And I remember one time, multiple times, I should say, where someone would sit in front of me and explain something and then start to cry and then apologize. And I said, what are you apologizing for? Well, I shouldn't do this at work. I said, you're being you. It's okay to be you. I'm there so is nothing wrong. You yeah. are a strong person. And just because you're having a moment where some emotion is coming out that maybe you don't feel comfortable with, that's still fine. Yeah. It, there is nothing wrong. In fact, I, I remember one time in particular, I was sitting with um, I, uh, this very, very smart woman who had run one of our facilities in a market, one of our largest facilities. And there was just a moment where she just shut the door and she said, can I vent to you for a minute? I said, absolutely. And she broke down and was angry and sad and mad and crying and upset. And then when she was finished, she goes, I'm so sorry. And I looked at her and said, what are you sorry for? She goes, I've never done that in my entire career. And I just feel really emotionally vulnerable right now because I felt like that in my entire career, I have to be like the guys. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you definitely don't have to be like that around me. I appreciate what you just did and what you're showing me right now. And I think it shows a lot of courage. Yeah. And I love what you're talking about that. I 1000%, a million percent agree with you that women don't need to be like men. In right. fact, uh, if I'm, if I'm going to expose one of my biases, um, right now, I often think women are better managers because I think that they can think intelligently, they can think more broad based and they take into account the emotional quotient of everybody there better than most guys do. And so that's my own experience. Call me whatever you want to call me, but that's my own bias. I think Far more times than not, well, uh, yeah. female managers that I had working for me were 
10 times better than the mill managers. And I think that there's so much like you're doing there to empower them. And that's so important. The reality is right now, women can't make all the strides by themselves. They need help no. from men. Like um, one example that you hear used a lot is women won't take their full maternity leave unless their male colleagues take their full paternity leave. So even if you have a wife who's home or a partner who's home taking care of your kids all the time, if you still take your full paternity leave, that gives your female colleague um, more credibility when she wants to take her full maternity leave. And I yeah. know um, there's a couple of times when that, like when a male colleague has made a real difference for me, I know uh, a guy that we went to high school with, I won't tell you his name, but that was my mentor in one of my years in law school, there was a big issue that came up in the office and he was running the office and he said, Oh, we're going to have this big team meeting. We've got to really deal with this. And we went and sat down and he's, a, he's a really a big wig now. And he's high up in me. And I thought, I didn't even realize what automatic biases I had. I thought he's going to open the meeting and he's going to tell us what to do because all of the, his colleagues were women. And he opened up the meeting and he said, this is a really big deal. I want to know what you guys think we should do. And then all of these women just piped in because he gave them such, he was so supportive. It was clear to me, this is a work environment where they feel like he values their opinion. And it's sad that I, to say that so basically like he values their opinion, but you do go through periods where it may, especially I think some women who came of age a little earlier where they feel like they haven't always had their opinion valued. And I, even my daughter said to me the other day, I said about one of my colleagues, she is a really feisty woman. And my daughter said to me, mom, would you ever say a man was feisty? And I was like, I guess not. Mm. And she was like, see, you're <laughs> still using sexist language. Like it's not the same as maybe someone saying, oh, she's a bitch just because she's hard, but also, right, but it's right. the same thing. Like, oh, she's feisty. That's like an emotional, like a, you know, kind of a word. And I was like, that's true. I mean, even we ourselves still see things that way. Yeah, and it's something that we have to constantly be aware of. And then ad, we've got to break those, and then we've got to advocate for, for other people. Well, Emily, we're coming up on our time, and we really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. So we, we uh, yeah. like to finish out the podcast by asking a few rapid-fire questions. Hey. Um, so we're going to go through, and in your best quick legal response, one word or one phrase answer. You ready? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk about disruption. How do you disrupt your life in order to spark new growth? I go back to law school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would say I make a goal every year on my birthday to learn something new. So this year I'm learning Spanish. Mm. All right. We're going to have you back on and talk some Spanish then. Um, the next one is irrelevant because we've talked about it the entire time. It's how you've evolved over the years. So we're skipping that one. Okay. Um, and I'm going to ask a question of as you have evolved, what is something that you used to believe, but you no longer do? I used to believe that people were judging me harsher than they are. And the reality is the vast majority of people are very open to you being just who you are. And they'll accept you that way, even if they don't realize it at first. Once they get to know you, they will. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. You're right. That. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. 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 And uh, last one, are there habits, routines, or rituals that you use continually to help you progress? I think um, I would answer that a little differently in saying 
I, I'm really become converted to finding my own rituals and my own habits. You hear both in the law and in writing a lot of, you have to write this much every day, or you have to do this much every day, or you're most productive during these hours. I'm a night owl. I am just not most productive in my early morning hours. I have really adopted looking for and finding my own rituals and not comparing them to other people's. Don't compare your habits to other people's compare them to yourself. And if you're getting the the best productivity and success out of you. I love that. Yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were asking me some health and fitness question. And I said, just become an expert on your body. Take the time, listen to your body, pay attention. If you pay attention to your body over six months, you will know how you should move and work out and when you should rest. Don't go read a book. Don't try and let somebody tell you exactly what you should do. Become an expert on you. And I think it's that same great advice. Well, Emily, maybe Swenson, we really appreciate you coming and joining us today. And uh, thanks for taking the time. Uh, And on that note, folks, it is time for us to wrap up another episode of the Evolve podcast. We want to thank Emily, maybe Swenson for joining us and my co-host w miles riley with all of his cough drops uh, in his tea tonight Uh, we've had a great conversation and we hope that you our evolutionary listeners took something with you that will help you on your personal evolution so emily uh if people want to continue to follow your amazing evolution what's the best best way for people to contact you or follow you um every magic seed on instagram is probably that's, and actually, my legal name is Emily Maybe. So, Emily oh, Maybe at gmail.com or Every Magic Seed is my because I believe every great new experience starts with one little magic seed. So, that's beautiful. I always wondered what that was and I just never asked. So, I'm glad you brought that up. Every Magic <laughs> Seed on social media. That's great. Uh, and, Miles, what's new at Evolve? Well, everything is new at Evolve, but we are still highlighting the Evolve Your Soul t-shirt. It is a great shirt. Your soul is consistently evolving all the time, even when you are unaware of that evolving process. So folks, get on over, pick one up, the Evolve um, Your Soul, pick one up, and um, you'll have a reminder of that ever-evolving soul of yours. Where do we get that? Where do we get that? I want one. Yeah. We'll talk offline and we'll get you one for sure. Thank you. But people can go to evolve-cast.com to uh, go to the shop and see all everything that we have there. Um, and hey, guys, do me a favor, will you? Don't wait. Go smash the stars or the ratings on the app that you're listening to us on. Your ratings help us to find other amazing guests like Emily. And if you like this uh, episode, share it with your friends. That's one of the ways that we find our podcast grows the quickest is if you like an episode, share it with your friends. And uh, we love to get the word out there. Uh, So guys, remember, it takes time and consistency to evolve. But first, you have to disrupt your life in order to evolve your mind, evolve your body, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. You're fantastic. But uh, now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. And evolve.